Well, your Bibles are open to Job. You've got them in your lap as well as your journal. What do you say we get under it and have the Lord work in our hearts through his word? When we last left Job, he was at the bottom of the pile asking one question. Say it with me. Why? Or you could say he was at the bottom of the pyramid. By that, we're referring to the graphic we showed you last week that I think sums up and gives an overview of the book of Job. I'll show it again to you here briefly. Last week, we did look at the earthly anguish that Job was enduring, the suffering that he was experiencing. And, of course, we examined that in chapters 1 and 2 just from a... um, kind of a high-level view, we looked mainly at the last part of chapter 3, which is a poetic version of the word and question why. And so as we now get into chapters 4 through about 31, which is the bulk of the book, we're going to see the answer to that question from three of his friends. Now, you'll notice in the overview graphic that It goes 4 to 37. It's because chapters 32 to 37 are a fourth friend he has named Elihu. We're going to look at that next week. This week, we're going to look at chapters 4 through 31 and just his three friends. I've never preached from this much text in my life, but I think we'll be okay. God's spirit will meet us here. His word is before us. I'm confident this is the right approach to this book. Because his three friends, who are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all of their speeches, their answer to his question from chapter 3, they're all very similar. In fact, I would say they're repetitious. They have one major thing they try to say. They each give three speeches. Job gives his response. And their approach, their answer, their Main thought is a humanly judicial view. It's a humanly judicial approach. So we're going to look at that. We're going to see Job's response, and then we're going to make some pretty convicting applications. So we've got quite a journey ahead of us today. As we begin that journey, I want to show you really what their approach will reveal to us. This is our take-home truth in advance this morning. Jot this down in your journal. Write it in your Bible, on your notes. I want you to have this up front so you can begin to see how they do think this way. And what we're going to see from their approach this morning in chapters 4 through 31 is this, that a humanly judicial view or approach, it fails to sufficiently answer why because it emphasizes immediate, not eventual, justice. This is our take-home truth, and Essentially, what is the premise of all three of Job's friends is this. If you do what is right, things will go well for you. If you do what's wrong, it won't go very well. God will send judgment. And so this is a technically true understanding. It's rightly judicial, but the problem is his friends were expecting this in the immediate They wanted to see this type of judicial action from God in the here and now, and they were thinking that was exactly what was happening. So they were expecting this kind of justice in this life quickly. Now let's be candidly frank here, 
just before we dive into this long portion of Scripture, Christians will generally agree that ultimately God blesses the righteous and he judges the wicked. He takes care of his own people. He thwarts the plans of those who are against him. But that is not the question or the issue discussed by Job's friends. Job's friends are not trying to figure out what's ultimately happening. They are uh, honing in and convinced that Job has got an immediate problem. And this is why their approach, as you will see, falls short. Because they are way too horizontal. They're, they're way too momentary. So I'm praying, and I want you to pray with me, in fact, even as you're taking notes and listening, that in these moments, the Holy Spirit will illuminate our spiritual eyes to see that a humanly judicial approach, it falls short in answering the why question. Now watch this, not because of distorted truth, but because of distorted timing. You see, the evaluation of Job's three friends in many ways is technically proper, but it's theologically premature. It's way too horizontal. It's not vertical enough. It's spiritually short-sighted. It relies on visible transactions only, immediate results. In plain terms, their equational understanding of how God works is just simply nearsighted. They're only looking in the moment. So you're going to see this truth emerge from these chapters. Now, I want to say something to you. I realize this is only a stated proposition. Most of our take-home truths, most of our uh, end of sermon sentences, they involve some action. I exhort you and I exhort myself, I exhort our church to, to obedience. That's the goal of the Great Commission. It's the goal of preaching, to do what we hear. This is currently just a proposition but I want to encourage you that if you'll climb with me today to the very end of this hike, as intense as it may be, I think we'll arrive at an application that will be very practical. So with your Bibles open and your fingers loose and your eyes fast, let's dive into Job chapters 4 through 31. You will need uh, probably three or four hands to flip in your Bible, to take good notes, to snap a picture of the screen. If you need a Bible, it will help Today, even more than usual, so just raise your hand. Rushers will make sure you have a Bible. We have some we'd like to give you. Let's dive into Job 4 to 31. I'm going to walk you through the three series of three speeches. I won't highlight every verse on the screen. I won't read every verse in all the chapters. I'm going to kind of jump from peak to peak to peak to show you the themes and kind of the major emphases of not only their speeches but of his response. I would encourage you. Read Job 4 to 31 today or tomorrow, especially all these references. Use them in your small group with your children around the dinner table in your own personal devotions. These are incredibly convicting um, scriptures as we think about this view that actually falls short in answering the why question. Well, Eliphaz, he begins the set of speeches. This is why most folks think he's the oldest of Job's friends. He begins in four, but I want you to see a summary in chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, See how happy is the person whom God corrects? So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. 
He's saying, Job, I can tell by your emotional state you're rejecting God, you're resisting Him. If you would just repent and receive this correction, you'd be much happier. Look at verse 27. He speaks here saying, we've investigated this. It is true. Hear it and understand it for yourself. Somewhat of a proud comment from the oldest friend. Job, we've analyzed your case. Just listen to us, buddy. And so he's starting off by saying, you've sinned, you're guilty. The Lord is now punishing you. Can't you see it? It's clear. It's in the moment. You did this, and now you got that. So he's transactional, kind of visible, equational, but only in the moment. Look how Job responds. He responds actually in chapter 6 and 7. 6 is to his friends, 7 is to God. Look what he says to his friends. I'll have you notice mainly just verse 29 in chapter 6 in which he says to his friends, reconsider, don't be unjust, reconsider, my righteousness is still the issue. And this is one of the first times Job says clearly that he is not experiencing punitive action from God. I don't think ever in this set of speeches or responses, Job pretends that he's not enduring something from the Lord. God is doing something mysterious and supernaturally, but he does maintain this. He's not under the punitive hand of God. He's not being punished for a sin, for a denial, for a rejection. He admits something's happening, but it's not due to a sin of rejection or denial. I've not done something that God's punishing me for. That's what he's maintaining. And they're disagreeing with him adamantly. In fact, look at chapter 7, verses 20 and 21 in his comments to God. If I have sinned, what have I done to you, watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target so that I have become a burden to you? Notice the very first word there, if. Job's open to saying, God, what's happening? If it is a sin, tell me. But he's maintaining, even with the word if, that no, this is not a punitive situation. God's not punishing me. But his friends are sure that God is. Bildad speaks next. Look at chapter 8. Um, notice verse 2. How long will you go on saying these things? Your words are a blast of wind. Can I give you a vernacular, a common vernacular for blast of wind? You know it already, hot air. He saying, Job, you're just full of words that really amount to nothing. It's almost as saying, you know you're guilty. Look at verse 4. Your children sinned against him. He gave them over to their rebellion. That's a very personal attack. He's saying, Job, somebody messed up in this situation. Can't you just read the writing on the wall? But if you earnestly seek God, verse 5 says of chapter 8, and ask the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, he will move even now on your behalf. Do you see the transactional, equational, in-the-moment type of thinking? You did something wrong. Your kids must have done something wrong. You're getting punished. But if you'll just repent, ask God for mercy, he'll make everything good. Job responds to Bildad in chapters 9 and 10. And because Bildad's language in the original is somewhat trial-like, it has lawyer-esque type of feelings, Job uses much of the same language in answering Bildad. It's hard to see this in the English just know this, that there are at least eight legal words used in chapters 9 and 10 when Job gives his response. And so he's, he's, he's in one sense saying to Bildad, I hear you, 
you're trying to legally, like a lawyer, corner me, I can answer you in the same fashion. He talks a lot about the innocent and the guilty, but he maintains that he is the innocent party. Look at 921. Here's the core of his response to build that. Though I am, say it with me, church, blameless. He says, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. His point is, if I was hiding something, that I would want to confess that to save myself. But he says, I'm blameless, so if it's the end of my life, so be it. I've got nothing to hide. This is not punitive action from God for a sin that I've committed. Well, Zophar shows up next. He is perhaps the youngest of the friends. These are things we don't know for sure. We're just guesstimating here. He begins to speak in chapter 11. Look at verse 6. Actually, verses 1 through 6 are, are kind of his summary. He also talks about Job's words in verse 2. He says, should such a talker like you be acquitted, and his use of the word acquitted means perhaps you're guilty. and We should find a way to get you to a place of, of acquittal. He continues by saying in verse 5, look at this, if only God would speak and open his lips against you. In other words, Job, you're saying your teaching is sound, as verse 4 says. You're saying you're pure in sight, but if God would speak, he would show that you're wrong. Look at verse 6. Know then that God has chosen to overlook some of your iniquity. So you see the, the blatant disagreement occurring between Job and three of his, and I use this word in air quotes, friends. We consistently use that word friends to describe these three, but the more I read the more inclined I am to think they're really not his friends. <laughs> they're coming at him pretty strong. Well, Job responds to Zophar in chapter 12. Look at verse 4 for a summary of his response. He says, I'm a laughing stock to my friends by calling on God who answers me. The, the righteous and blameless man is a laughing stock. In other words, he's admitting, you guys think I'm foolish this looks ridiculous to you that I would continue to call on God, but I'm righteous, I'm blameless. God will hear me. He's not punishing me. Yes, he's doing something, but this is not a punitive act of God because I've sinned. I'll keep repeating that to make sure you understand the contrast between Job and his three friends. Well, this Job's response is actually 12 and 13, and I think in chapter 13 what he does is he kind of gives a response to all three of his friends' is first speeches look at verse 15 of chapter 13 here he says I will still defend my ways before him I'll hope in him even if he kills me Job is maintaining his innocence he has a high level of confidence not pride but spiritual confidence look what he says in chapter 13 oh about verses um his overall response to his friends are in verse 15 and 16. You see that? Well, series two begins. Um, Eliphaz again speaks in chapter 15. We're walking through this pretty quickly, so stay up, keep up best you can. Eliphaz in chapter 15, speech number two. Look at verse four. Here he, he begins to escalate the conversation. He says, you undermine the fear of God. You hinder meditation before him. Your iniquity teaches you what to say. You choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. He's now accusing Job not just of sinning, but of hiding his sin, of using words to, to cover. Like it's, it seems more intentional and deceitful than before. 
Look at verse 25. Eliphaz is describing the wicked person and how their life is terrible and how their life of the righteous is great. And so he's describing Job as that wicked person. Verse 20, he writhes in pain all his days throughout the number of years reserved for the ruthless. Verse 25, he stretched out his hand against God, has arrogantly opposed the Almighty. Verse 27, though his face is covered with fat, uh, though his waistline bulges with it, though he, he will dwell in ruined cities, in abandoned houses, destined to become piles of rubble. He'll no longer be rich. His wealth will not endure. This is a description of Job in Eliphaz's second speech. He's becoming very personal. Verse 34 is probably the most personal attack in his speech. Look at what it says. For the company of the godless will have no children and fire will consume the tents of those who offer bribes. I believe a direct reference to chapters 1 and 2, the things Job went through. Elevaz is saying, Job, if you had any smarts about you, you would see that your situation's clearly just like the godless people because they never have it good. See, the problem is we know intuitively that ultimately God does deal with the wicked, but often in this life they are as prosperous as other people. There are many wicked people who don't really go through much difficulty at all until later. Eliphaz is just assuming all of this happens in the moment. That's why in Job's response in chapter 16, look what he says. Around verse 15, he says, I've sown sackcloth over my skin. I've buried my strength in the dust. My face has grown red, darkness covers my eyes, verse 17, but my hands are free from violence, my prayer is pure. In fact, verse 19, he says, my advocate is in the heights, a reference to chapters 1 and 2, because who was his advocate? God. And who did God advocate to? It was the accuser. Now, it is odd to us, it is strange to us, that in that moment, in the divine council in heaven, when the accuser says, I bet Job is just serving you because of all you do for him and all you give him, God says, you can have at him. Attack his possessions and attack his person, and you'll see that he will keep his integrity. You'll see why he really serves me. It's interesting that God would allow that, but in a very real sense, he is advocating for Job's spiritual temperature and stamina. Job knows this, and he rejects his friend's uh, accusations. Bill Dead chimes in again in chapter 18. In fact, he begins his second speech the same way he began the first one. Notice the two words in verse 2, how long? That's how he began his first speech in chapter 8. How long until you stop talking? Show some sense, and then we can talk. Verse 21 gives us another insight into Bildad's second speech. Look what it says here. Indeed, such is the dwelling of the unjust man. This is the place of the one who does not know God. He's referring to Job's place. He said, Job, open your eyes, buddy. This is the second time around. You're not listening. You wouldn't be in this mess if you had not done something wickedly wrong. Job responds to Bildad. Look at verse 4 of chapter 19. Even if it is true that I have sinned, my mistake concerns only me. 
If you really want to appear superior to me and would use my disgrace as evidence against me, then understand it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. He's saying this. If what you say is true, guys, then why are other people suffering, like my children, servants, I mean, his whole household? If what you're saying is that I've wronged, sinned against God in a way that he's going to punitively come against me, then why are the other folks having to pay the price? He says, your logic doesn't hold up then it would be God who's wronged me. So Job here again is maintaining his spiritual integrity, his innocence, so to speak. Not only to Eliphaz, but now also to Bildad. Look at 19, um, excuse me, Zophar then comes in again in chapter 20. He begins to speak. Here's his third speech. It's summarized best in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 20. It begins not only now to escalate, I believe Zophar begins to kind of broaden the horizon. Perhaps these, his friends were feeling like, well, we're not getting anywhere by making sure Job sees his personal guilt. Maybe we should just broaden it out to show Job that, you know, this is true for all wicked people. Like, Job, you're not the only one. Look at what it says in verse 4. Don't you know that ever since antiquity, from the time a human was placed on earth, the joy of the wicked has been brief and the happiness of the godless has lasted only a moment? And so Zophar here is trying to say, Job, you, you keep thinking you're an exception, that this is not really you, but it is you, they're saying. And Job maintains this response, no, I'm not in that crowd. I've not sinned against the Lord in a way that would make him take punitive action against me. Look at his response in chapter 21. Oh, about verse 22. He actually says here something very intriguing because his three friends are trying to make it... Um, can I use the word simplistic? Job, this happened, and now this happened. So add it up. It's very simple. It's not just you. This is true for all of the wicked people. And, and Job says, no, that's not always true. Several wicked people actually survive life just fine. They're very prosperous. Look at verse 22. Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges the exalted one? One person dies in excellent health, completely secure and at ease. His body's well fed, his bones are full of marrow, yet another person dies with a bitter soul, never having tasted prosperity. He's saying, guys, in the moment, sometimes it looks very equal. We often don't know what's happening long term just by looking in the moment. Because oftentimes the wicked and the righteous, they look very similar in the immediate. If you just go by external circumstances. Well, he then responds... In verse 34, I believe, to all three of them, this is a pretty, uh, a pretty, uh, it comes at him pretty good here. He says in verse 34, how can you offer me such futile comfort? Your answers are deceptive. I like the way he puts that because I think he's aiming his answer to them, to their second round of speeches, which is this. Job, it's not just that you've sinned. Now it appears you're trying to hide your sin. And so as you read more of these speeches, you'll kind of get that flavor, how it escalates from just not just sinning but to deception. He said, no, guys, what's deceptive is your insight. This is no comfort at all. So do you, do you feel the tension now? Are you even in just jumping from peak to peak? I mean, you can just see the vast difference. Here these friends are saying, Job, you're under condemnation. It's easy to see in the moment. He said, no, I've not sinned in a way that God would take punitive action there's something else going on. 
He's not sure what it is, but he's willing to say, I'm not being punished. I'm innocent. I'm blameless. The third round ensues with Eliphaz again speaking. Chapter 22, you're doing great. Hang in there with me, church. Chapter 22, look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 22. Eliphaz here exhorts Job to come to terms with God, to be at peace. In this way, good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and place his sayings in your heart. Look at 27 and 28 of 22. You will pray to him, he'll hear you, you'll fulfill your vows. When you make a decision, it'll be carried out and light will shine on your ways. I mean, I, I can't think of a, any other set of verses in his speech that would be more transactional than that. Job, don't you know God? If you do that, he'll do this. That's not happening, so you messed up, buddy. I mean, it's just very in the moment, equational, short-sighted kind of thinking. Job responds in chapter 23, look at verses 8 to 12 by saying this, it's not that easy, gentlemen. The Lord's ways are not that simplistic. Again, it's truthful to say, it's technically proper to admit, the Lord does operate on spiritual divine equations. No one's doubting that, but the timing of those things is where they're going wrong. And Job here says, you're short-sighted. You can't figure God out that easily. He's not a simple math problem you can just add up. Look what verse 8 says. If I go east, he's not there. If I go west, I cannot perceive him. When he's at work to the north, I cannot see him. When he turns south, I cannot find him. Watch verse 10. Yet he knows the way I have taken. And when he's tested me, I will emerge as pure gold. Here's the stark reality that God's people live with. Often we may not know what God is doing, but all the time God knows what he is doing. And Job here says, when God is finished, I will emerge as pure gold. He's confident that though he doesn't know what God is doing, it's not punitive. Isn't corrective. God's refining him, maturing him. He's not punishing him. Look at verse 11. My feet have followed in this track. I have kept to his way. I've not turned aside. I have not departed from his commands from his lips. I have treasured the words from his mouth more than my daily food. You see Job maintaining his integrity, his innocence, his blamelessness? You would think that would be enough, but it wasn't. Bill Dad jumps in again for the third time. Chapter 25. Here's the shortest speech in the book. And, and he, what Bildad does is he says, Job, I hear you, but let's be honest. There's really no blameless person ever before God. Look what he says in verse 4. How can a human be justified before God? How can one born of woman be pure? He's like saying, Job, so even if you aren't deceitfully hiding sin, admit it. No one's as blameless as you're claiming. Like, you've got to have something. Verse 5, even if the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less a human who is a maggot, a son of man who is a worm. They're relentless, aren't they? They're going to do their best to peel back Job's chest cavity, to perform surgery, to find out what in the world did you do to make God come at you this way? Job responds in 26 through 28, to Bildad, look at verses 2 through 6 for a summary of his response to Bildad's third speech. 
I like the way verse three says it, as long as my breath is still in me and the breath from God remains in my nostrils, my lips will not speak unjustly. My tongue will not utter deceit. I will never affirm that you are right. I will maintain my integrity until I die. I will cling to my righteousness and never let it go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. What a clear verbalization that he knows he is clean before the Lord. He's not claiming to be perfect, but he's claiming to be a true, devoted, consistent follower of Yahweh. And he's going to hold that position. I love the phrase, my conscience will not accuse me. So Job has inspected himself. He's looked deep and wide. There's not a sin or a posture or a rebellion or a denial for which God is punishing him that he can find. As chapter 29 unfolds, we find an interesting response from Job here now, what I believe is to all of his friends. There's no record of Zophar giving a third speech. What we have instead now is Job's final claim of innocence. His final uh, speech and response to all they said that would assert his integrity. Let me tell you a couple things about these three chapters that I think are just enlightening. In these chapters, what you find really are, are 15 ifs. And what they amount to are 15 oaths. They're worded with the beginning word if, but it really is like an oath. And so it's an Old Testament equivalent to like uh, a statement of fact. You also find 11 questions. And so these 15 if statements, these 11 questions, they serve as an intensely poetic and rhetorical way to emphasize Job's innocence. He's making a very strong statement here that no matter what you say and no matter what you think, before God, I know he's not punishing me. He is doing something. I won't deny he's working, he's moving, I'm enduring, I'm suffering, but it's not because I sinned. God is not punishing me. It looks that way in the immediate, but that's not what's happening, guys. In fact, my favorite portion in these three chapters begins in verse 35 of chapter 31. This is pretty emotional. I hope it rips your heart apart as you read Job's response to his so-called friends. This is one of his oaths, one of his if statements. Look what he says. This is beautiful. If only I had someone to hear my case. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my opponent compose his indictment. So once Job signs the dotted line and the indictment and the statement is clear and he's saying that's, that's what's going on, here's what he would say he would do with that. I would surely carry it on my shoulder and wear it like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps and I would approach him like a prince. You don't approach God carrying something like a crown and walking like a prince if you've been hiding sin and rebelling privately. This is Job saying, in front of my maker, 
If I had his indictment, I signed on the dotted line, I would mount that like a crown and walk into the presence of my creator, not proudly, but as a son. I would walk in with delight, knowing I have not sinned against you. This is a beautiful statement of relationship of a king and a prince. This is how committed and how sure and how spiritually, and can I say these words together? Humbly confident Job was that their approach, which was humanly judicial, transactional, in the moment, Job, can't you see what's happening? You're suffering, you must have messed up. He's saying, guys, you're way too quick on the draw. Something's going on, but God's not punishing me. This is not just a simple equation of you did bad, so you get judged. I love the way he responds to that. So I think you can see this. I know we've kind of jumped from peak to meek. That's the quickest I've gone through, what is it, 28 chapters in my life. You did a great job listening so quickly, and I trust you will read those scriptures and those passages, all the chapters. They are powerful. What you see is a humble man trusting in God and rightly in his walk before God to try to begin to understand what's happening around him, to try to answer the why question. He's realizing, after hearing from three of his friends on three different occasions, your approach is falling short. So let me remind you again of our take-home truth. And I think you can see how we arrive at this now. How his friends actually held to this transactional, horizontal, short-sighted understanding of Job's suffering. That it was judicial. They were thinking, you are, you're deserving of something, Job. It must be punishment because you must have done something wrong. It's equational. It's transactional. Job's saying, no, it is equational, but I don't understand the equation, and you're way too short-sighted. Something's happening in the long term, and it's not about punishment. In fact, you're seeing what I'm seeing is that his friends were saying, Job, you're under condemnation. And he's saying, no, I'm waiting for vindication. Those are two good words that will show us the contrast of, of these chapters. They go from accusation to condemnation. Job goes from justification to vindication. They are assuming God has already acted. Job is waiting for God to act. So can you say this with me? I want this to just be cemented in your brain. I want you to hear this proposition. Think it over. Write it down. Can you say it with me? A humanly judicial view fails to sufficiently answer why because it emphasizes immediate, not eventual, justice. Now, maybe you're silently thinking right now, Todd, that is soberingly staggering. 28 chapters of this conversation between friends, it's it bowls me over. But so what? I mean, Todd, that's some pretty good literary analysis, but it's 4,000 years old. Like, uh, it's 2023, Todd. Like, 
so what? Like, nice hike, but uh, I'm failing to get the view. What do you say we begin our descent by applying this? And I want to apply it in three ways. I want to ask, who is this for? And then, how and what are we to do because of it? Application number one, who needs this? I do. That's the first answer I want to give you. Now, my heart says some of you do as well. But this week, I couldn't get past the first answer. Convictingly and very vulnerably, I want to admit to you, I, I read the story thinking I was going to be Job. And I emerged, realized that I'm really my Job's friends. Like, it's, it's hard to say. But when I got through with 31, um, yeah, I'm not Job. I'm one of Job's friends. I'm in his friend group, you know, in the Facebook of Ur. Let me confess something to you. This is something that I've struggled with over the years. I do think the Lord is sanctifying me in this. But as I told one of my kids this week, man, I wish it was a lot doggone faster, this whole sanctification process. Could you join me in that prayer? Like, amen, right? Like, I still struggle with equational, like short-term, short sided judicial expectations that are very horizontal. I want to give an answer, a solution because of what I see. Now I want to admit to you some things that as a father, this is when my conviction probably this week surfaced the most. I think about in my efforts often with our children to try to bring clarity to situations I think often my clarity turned into over-simplistic words. They should have done that, it wouldn't have happened. They should do that, but take care of it. Uh, it could be about finances, relationships, but often it seemed very simple to me, and so I would verbalize that, and I didn't know the whole story I wasn't thinking long-term. I didn't even know what God was doing in their life beyond what I could see, and so I would give a humanly judicial answer, much like Job's friends. I often did it to our kids. I think my motives, if I can say this in all transparency, were right. You know, as a dad, you want to bring clarity. You don't want to lead in a way that's fuzzy, right, guys? But I realized that the danger sometimes to, to clarity is that you can often be too simple. You can be just like Job's friends. You see, judicial perspectives in the moment, they make sense until they don't. And then you find out one bit of information 
or one nugget of circumstantial truth that you didn't know or you didn't regard and suddenly you say, oh, and then you want to kind of begin to backpedal. <laughs> Ever been there? I have. My explanations were very temporal. I think I was technically true, but I wasn't relationally or theologically sensitive. Like there's probably more going on than I know. And so I just want to say to you, first of all, who is this for? It's for your pastor. Who's admitting to you, I'm in Job's friend group. I've grieved this this week, multiple times. With situations and relationships that I know I spoke like one of Job's friends. Now, in grieving that, the Lord was very gracious to me. And I think he gave some insight into why it happens and maybe why it happened. Maybe this will help us all. I think this is the way that we tend to respond when we don't really know much suffering. Now, hang with me here, okay? I'm going to be very vulnerable with you. I... I'm on the verge, I think, of high level of misinterpretation here, as well as perhaps sounding arrogant. I don't want either of those results, but I want to share with you, I think we act like his three friends when we have very little to draw from. And frankly, I haven't had a very difficult life. The vast majority of you have been through things far worse than I have yet to know. This could change with a phone call this afternoon. I realize that. It could change tonight, tomorrow. So I'm not at all trying to state anything proudly or arrogantly. I'm not trying to boast. None of this is due to anything I've done. God's sovereignty, which is outside of my control, has allowed me to have a life that hasn't known a lot of difficulty. I don't know why, I just know what is. The result, though, has often been things seem simple to me when perhaps they're not that simple. Could somebody say amen? And so here's what I'm saying to you. When we are in unfamiliar territory, which is what I'm in when I'm around people or dealing with very high-level suffering situations, intense tragedy, we're in waters that, that I've, not, I've never navigated, so we tend to resort to the simplest explanation because it's all we have to draw from. Are you, are you tracking with me? And then we verbalize that, and it comes off, and it probably is a very humanly judicial approach to something because we want to provide clarity. We want to give answers, and so we draw on what we have, which isn't very much, and we just kind of, there it is. It can sound a lot like Eliphaz, Bill, Dad, and so far. This is why I've been nervous about this whole five weeks. Julie can uh, affirm this. Some of our staff could. I've been anxious about this series because I, I have a very little framework for intense suffering. So can I say to you, 
when we're in those situations, our tendency is then to just resort to what we know and provide a simple word. The danger is it might be technically true, but it's theologically off in its timing. And this is what Job's three friends did. They gave a quick, simple, sight-based response. They gave an immediate evaluation. They gave a humanly judicial viewpoint. It was a here and now kind of approach. It was a verdict based on the visible. Short-sighted. Yes, true in its essence, but distorted in its timing. That's who this is for. Those of us who have a difficult time relating to suffering of this nature and to tragedy and trial of this extent, and yet we want to try to provide a reason for it. The why question has an answer, but it's not this simple. I've just committed to the Lord. Lord, would you keep helping me be a better pastor? Help me be a better dad, a better husband, and to continue to be clear on truth, but to do it and wrap it with words that admit sometimes we just don't know in the moment all that God is doing. That's who this is for. Like I said, it started with me, but I suspect I'm not the only guy in the room rowing that boat. So maybe right now you're under conviction. Great. We could use a whole church full of people who will abandon the humanly judicial approach and instead embrace a divinely judicial approach. Let me see if I can explain what that is. Let's talk about the how and the what of this. Here's what we should do. We should embrace a patient perspective. This is the take-home action or take-home application in response to our take-home truth. We should embrace waiting as a worthy response to suffering evil and tragedy. We should see waiting as essential gear for our journey through life. I would challenge you, and I I mentioned this on the Extra Point Podcast Tuesday, I would challenge you though, just do a, a scan through the Bible at the amount of times God calls his people to wait and to be patient, more specifically to wait on the Lord. And not to assume that you can add up all he's doing in a moment and then blurt out an answer. But instead, when you don't know what he's doing, know that he knows what he's doing. And to trust him and to wait on him. This is a divinely judicial view. Why? Because it's hinged to ultimate justice. And this is what patience provides for God's people. It provides the the foundation for a perspective that's rooted in divine justice we call ultimate justice eventual justice not always immediate that's why I say to you without any apology I would exhort you strongly to see waiting as a worthy response to suffering often it seems frustrating to be told wait on the Lord we don't know what he's doing but he will He will hear us. He answers us. He will show us. We want to know now. Often pastors and even small group leaders and members and friends are heard 
in a weird way if we just say, well, just wait on the Lord. But actually, that's a very worthy response to suffering and tragedy. Now, hear this well, church. Worthy, excuse me, waiting is not an inactive response. We're still working while we wait. But can I be very frank with you? Often our working doesn't work. Like we think we're going to solve something and fix it, and it doesn't fix it. Who's been there? Say amen, right? So what do you do when, even when you're working, does it work? You have to still wait. Still trust. So waiting is not an inactive response, but it is a worthy one. I might say to you it's the most worthy one. It's not inactive, and it's not our only response. But it is our most worthy one. It's the one we're always brought back to. Waiting on the Lord when we don't fully understand why things are happening. Again, there is an answer. It's just not as quick as Job's three friends thought it was. Let's go one level deeper, can we? We're going to land this plane now after our descent. Because you may be asking, well, Todd, how do we increase our patience? If we're to embrace a patient perspective, if we're to see waiting as a worthy response, how do we get there? Here's how we do that. We long for Christ's return. This is how we increase our patience. Now, maybe you thought I was going to say, no, Todd, we increase our patience by going through trials and tribulations. Okay, that's true, but watch this. It only works, trials and tribulations only increase patience if you approach them properly because I've seen trials and tribulations do the opposite to people. Embitter them. Sour them imprison them so what gives it's because it's not just the fact of them it's our response to them that actually does the work and our response to trials and tribulations should be as hard as this is there is a day coming when Christ will return consummate his kingdom and he'll make all things new you see let's be very honest here that's what we're all waiting on as God's people amen church you're really not just waiting for your problem to get over. I mean, you are, but surely you're more mature than that. You want more than just a temporary fix, even though we do kind of want that. You want the ultimate permanent solution, the coming of Christ, his kingdom on earth. That's what we're after. See, that's what we long for. And when that longing becomes our heart's cry, we will learn to wait even in the most difficult of suffering and tragedy. We'll be patient to see what God is doing when it's not quite evident on day one or day 100. This is the proper approach to trials and tribulations, to let them stir in us an affection for, a desire for Christ to return and to consummate his kingdom. And this is really what will increase patience in all of God's people. You see, God's eventual justice, his ultimate verdict, is tied to the courtroom of Christ's coming. Never separate those two. That's when the verdict is finally and fully rendered. Till then, the jury's out. You know that, right? Until Christ comes, they're still uh, debating, so to speak, the jury. But when Christ comes, when he returns, 
Justice will be ultimately meted out. And that's why we wait to give God's justice time. The very thing Job's first three friends didn't give. They were immediate, in the moment, short-sighted, equational. Job instead said, I'm going through something and it's difficult and hard and tragic, but God is up to something. In time, he will bring me forth as gold. God, Job gave God's justice time. His three friends didn't. So I'm asking you and I to embrace a patient perspective and to learn to wait on the Lord and to give his justice time. Now it's fully appropriate here, my final words, to make sure all of us are aware that when Christ does return and when he renders his final verdict, it will be too late then to decide what you believe about Christ. To my seeker friends, to those who are seemingly agnostic, as you consider this first step in answering the why question, which is abandoning a humanly judicial view and embracing a divinely judicial perspective, as you consider this first step in answering that question, let the ultimate day of justice that is coming drive you to an immediate decision for Christ. See, ironically, waiting is what God's people do. If you're not one of God's people, Run to Jesus for salvation now so you can endure and persevere all the way to the end. Then you can wait with the rest of us. For what? For Christ to return and for his kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. And so to my brothers and sisters this morning, let's ask God to give us a mindset that is more about the ultimate and eventual than the immediate. It's the start of answering the why question. Timing is at the heart of this first step. We know that his three friends were truthful. They just were off in their timing. I'm asking that we embrace both now and that we pray for and live with long distance eyes and that we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To that end, can we pray and wait even now?